We begin today the most solemn and holy week of the Christian year, and so I have a number of things I want to preach about. Some of them are a little liturgical history, some about uh, the, the passion narrative that we heard from Mark's gospel, how that got put together, some things about the passion of Christ, and what do we mean when we say that, and how, in fact, does the passion of Christ connect to our own understanding, our self-understanding of the passions that we go through. So we'll see how it goes. It's a great privilege to preside at these liturgies. I know Father Emerson and Mother McNeil feel the same way every year. These are very old. They date from about uh, the middle 300s A.D., and I've told you before about an interesting person named Egeria, who was a pious woman. Maybe she was a member of a religious community in Gaul. And in the mid-300s, she went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And she kept a diary. I have a copy of it. You can get it uh, probably at Amazon. It's called Egeria's Travels. And she meticulously writes down what she saw on her journey. But perhaps for our purposes, the most important thing is that she was in Jerusalem during Holy Week. And so she wrote down what she saw the Jerusalem church doing in Jerusalem in about 340. And she describes Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday... Good Friday, and the first liturgy of Easter, the great, in those days, the only one, the great vigil of Easter. And she describes what it was that they did. So the palm liturgy and the liturgy of the Passion, she observed and wrote about them. So if you ever want to get a copy of the book, you could read it and see what you think. It's sort of embedded in all of the wanderings around uh, and so on but it's called Egeria's Travels. Anton Baumstark, the great liturgical scholar in Europe in the mid-19th century, the most holy and solemn times of the year, the most ancient rites are observed. It was, it's called Baumstark's Law, and my teacher, Lewis Weil, used to tell us about it every time we got to this time of year. Uh, when we were when I was in seminary at Mishota House, the mo the earliest written material that began to form what we now call the Gospels were the Passion narratives, and the earliest Passion narrative is the one from Mark's Gospel. Most biblical scholars uh, of a variety of hues uh, believe that Mark was the earliest Gospel. And so it originated as the, as the narrative of the Passion. And then from the other oral tradition, we come together now and we bring the full gospel, Mark's gospel, which is also the shortest gospel. So Matthew and Luke have their own Passion narratives and their own emphases and how they understood it. And so does John. And John has a particular type of a Passion narrative as well. But each one of them is important. I think I mentioned this last week. You know, we have four Gospels 
in the canonical Gospels. We don't have one. We don't have a harmonized version of the Gospel. We have four. We have four versions of the Gospel in the canonical Scriptures. And the early church that put together the biblical canon were okay with this. There are some people always and even in contemporary life who are somehow frustrated because there are inconsistencies between the four Gospels. And you know, they just need to take a chill pill about that. (laughs) It doesn't matter. They each have their own character and that's why they are included. So the scene. Here we have Palm Sunday. So, two processions. On the eve of Passover, entering the city of Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate, at the head of a column of Roman imperial cavalry, coming into Jerusalem before the celebration of Passover to make sure things go smoothly. Pontius Pilate is the servant of the Roman Empire, the mightiest empire that has ever been seen in human history up to that time, that controls by wealth, power, violence, and influence. They are representing Augustus, who is referred to as the Son of God, the Savior. Does this stuff sound familiar to you? Okay. So we have one version, don't we, there, of what we mean by kingdom and how we understand what it is. In the eastern part of Jerusalem, coming down the Mount of Olives, is a man from Nazareth, Jesus, who is riding on a donkey. And he comes now into Jerusalem and he is greeted by people who hail him as the king, the inaugurator of a new kingdom, the kingdom of peace, the kingdom where we don't live according to violence. We don't live according to power and control only. That somehow we believe that the kingdom of God is a community and a world transformed. And his earthly ministry up until that point had been to preach and teach that the nature of the kingdom of God is one in which the law of love will be the operative principle in all human interaction. And that you and I, as we come to appropriate and make part of our own personal history, the mighty works of Jesus Christ in his sayings, in his deeds, and in himself as a human being will provide for us the template that we can lay over our own spiritual life and development such that we now become the instruments of the transformation of the world, obedient to his teaching. So you might say in philosophy that on that day we had two rival versions of how the world ought to look. And what we mean by salvation. Uh, The Latin word passio is where we get the English word passion. 
It means suffering. At least in Latin it means that. And when we talk about the passion of Christ, we're speaking mainly in the tradition with a capital T of the suffering of Jesus. But I've noticed over the last... I went to the dictionaries this week about this. I've noticed that over time, particularly in the last 20 or 25 years, passion has another meaning, doesn't it, for us? Because people go to job interviews or they think it's important to say, this is my passion. You know, I want to do this. Well, I'm not throwing cold water on that. It may help us to understand if Jesus Christ is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, he is the template that we lay over our own passio, our suffering, and our own enthusiasm and commitment to our vocations. Because one of the reasons why early Christians believed him to be the Son of God was his single-minded alignment with the Father's purposes. And by virtue of that, he was able to convey to people that, you know what, this isn't just some tableau I'm viewing. He's giving me some tools that I can use so that I can begin to make sense of my own suffering, that I can begin to know more deeply and more fully my passions, my commitments to my vocation, and how we understand how that influences the way in which you and I shift the creation a little bit more close to what God's purposes are for it. There is something in the mystery of creation that tells us that God, this self-contained being, thought thinking itself, needs us and loves us and accepts us and forgives us unconditionally. And by virtue of that, somehow we come to terms with this passion, this commitment. Last week we talked about the cross and we said that, you know, sometimes we need to understand that the wisdom that we acquire comes from suffering and the accumulated response to adversity is what some might define as wisdom. Luke Timothy Johnson who is a well-known biblical scholar these days in the United States, says, just as the cross confounded ancient Jews and Greeks by contradicting their conventional wisdom about God, so does it remain an obstinate challenge to every age that seeks to identify God's rule with human comfort. Now, we have another uh, phenomenon that, that has uh, developed over the last few years. I've talked about it practically every year during Holy Week since it came to my attention among some of my close colleagues who feel that reading the Passion is just simply too much of a downer and we ought not to do it because it's too much of a depressing story and we don't want to bum people out even during Holy Week. It's violent, it's awful, it's terrible. Now, one of the reasons why that's true, I think, to give you a liturgical reason for this, 
which may be a testimony to how when we renewed the liturgy, we could have done something a little bit differently, and that is this. Egeria tells us that the palm liturgy was in the morning, and the, the liturgy of the Passion was in the evening. Or could have been the other way around. But there was a period of separation where we sort of emotionally, spiritually, and mentally can kind of wind down. And, you know, in history, these processions occurred about a week before Jesus was tried and crucified. So the triumphal entry, a historical fact, becomes now something that those in Jerusalem who followed Jesus could contemplate about him being the king of the kingdom of God. And then we come up against the conundrum of the cross. So what we've done is sort of mash them together. And this could be why some people have difficulty with it. What I can't understand is why they won't read it on Palm Sunday, the Passion Narrative, because it's important for us to think about it. One of the other problems we have is that about four or five years ago, there was a movie that was produced by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson is a member of a Roman Catholic sect. That's, about, that's the best way that I can describe it. I think they're now called Sedevacanists. I can't remember the exact word. His father is a big member of this. And one of the things that, that they do, they deny that the Holocaust ever happened. And they also uh, believe in a certain kind of piety that has its roots about 200 years before. The set of vacanists also believe that the Sea of Peter is empty, that Pope Benedict isn't, the true, isn't a true pope. So, you know. So he produces this movie where we have a Jesus in the movie who goes through the, the, the horrendous tortures and things. There's none of this at all in any of the four canonical Gospels that you see in this movie. Where they come from is from a vision that was had by a German nun at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century named Anne Catherine Emmerich. And she wrote down her vision about what she saw. She's also written down about her visions of the Trinity as sort of golden spheres that she saw, and they were all there with spheres, various sizes and spheres and so forth. So she's written about all of these kinds of things. And as my Old Testament teacher, uh, Ignatius Hunt, said to us, well, you can believe that if you want to. <laughs> but it's not in the Gospels. And the focusing on that kind of suffering is not redemptive. But it is, an, it is important for us to understand the role and the place of our own suffering as we live and what we learned from it. 
The passion of Christ means Jesus has been everywhere we have been. And he has triumphed over sin, sickness, and death, and has provided us with both an invitation and an opportunity now to live a life more congruent with his purposes. So as we continue through this solemn and holy time, think about your own passions in all their varieties. Think about that in Holy Week, what we celebrate is that through this, God is always present to you. God is always faithful to you. God will never leave. God is always present. Amen.